You are listening to the next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Good afternoon. You must be Martin. That's right. You must be Anna. That's right. I brought you some little gifts. That's very kind of you. It's a keyring with a musical note on it for Kim, because I know she likes music. What a charming boy. How long have you known him? Quite some time. His father was a patient of mine. I wanted to say one more thing. I'm really sorry about Bob. It's nothing serious. No, it is. They will all get sick and die. Bob will die. Kim will die. Your wife will die. Understand? No, I don't. My mom's attracted to you. She's got a great body. He's got issues. Serious psychological issues. You do realize, Stephen, we're in this situation because of you. All right, everyone, you were just listening to the trailer for The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and the story is as follows. Dr. Stephen Murphy is a renowned cardiovascular surgeon who presides over a spotless household with his wife and two children. Lurking at the margins of his idyllic suburban existence is Martin, a frivolous teen who insinuates himself into the doctor's life in gradually unsettling ways. Soon, the full scope of Martin's intent becomes menacingly clear when he confronts Stephen with a long-forgotten transgression that will shatter his domestic bliss forever. The film is starring Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, Barry Keoghan, Rafi Cassidy, Sonny Suljic, Alicia Silverstone, and Bill Camp. It is written and directed by Yorgos Lanthimos and co-written by Ephemus Filippou. Joining me for this review, I have Will Mavity. Hello, everybody. I don't quite have words to describe what I just saw. But we're going to try. But we're going to try. But we're going to try, yes, to the best of our abilities. Let me just first start off by saying that I believe after this movie, I'm very comfortable in saying that I think Yorgos Lanthimos is the new either David Lynch or David Cronenberg of our generation. This, uh, I, I got a lot of David Lynch and I got a lot of Lars von Trier from this. Oh, really? I definitely felt a lot of both, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can I can feel that for sure. Absolutely. But yeah, David Lynch, up to and including the fact that he also deliberately directs his actors to have flat affectations. And like, it's, you know, to the point that throughout the film, the dialogue deliberately feels hokey and stilted. Yeah. It's we'll get into that more. But yeah, I would agree, you know, like after he's had three just batshit insane films with this dog tooth and the lobster, he's certainly a distinctive directorial presence. We'll go with that. I don't know if he's our generation's Cronenberg. I I don't feel comfortable saying anyone is our generation's David Lynch. But as far as weirdness and uniqueness goes, he comes close. Well, the reason why I say that is because David Lynch has a way of making his audience feel like they're in a dream or a nightmare, if you will. His films are like hallucinogenic. And that is kind of the vibe I got from this. Like, I believe that The Killing of a Sacred Deer is something that is A, based off of a nightmare, and B, your nightmares are going to be based off of it. Yeah, well, those endless Steadicam shots going back and forth through, uh, you know, hospital hallways and stuff, it did feel very dreamlike. And 
the, the uses of slow-mo, the way that the music... What did someone describe the music in this film as? An orchestra from hell? Yeah, that sounds about like right. Like if, uh, I don't know, if like Mika Levy saw her entire family murdered while she was composing Jackie, I think we would end up with, get with this as the result. Everything about it does feel surreal. And I left, I, I will be honest, I had a very unsettled night's sleep last night after seeing the film. And I think it was in no small part because I saw this right before I went to bed. I think the intention of this movie is to make you uncomfortable and feel unsettled. Like, Yorgos Lanthimos, he sets out to make a movie that is going to annoy, scare, disturb, whatever you want to call it, the living crap out of you. Well, and the thing was, um, I haven't had this much uncomfortable laughter because almost I just didn't know how to react since Manchester by the Sea. Like, the entire film felt like that scene in Manchester by the Sea where they're trying to get the stretcher in the ambulance and it keeps breaking. Yeah. That's what this entire film felt like. So, but there, there are scenes near the end of the film where actions are attempted to be completed and can't be over and over again. And it, while it both the tension ratchets up and makes you feel anxious, at the same time you laugh. Or every time somebody falls, for example, you can't help but giggle. Like, it's in a weird way a very funny film because everything about it makes you feel so uncomfortable. Like, every interaction, but in the fact that the dialogue is so stilted and every like, Barry Keoghan's line delivery is so... At first, I thought he was a bad actor and then I realized he was deliberate and it fits so well. I have never felt this uncomfortable in a theater. You know, there were six girls, like a group of girlfriends sitting in front of me during this movie and I don't know what they thought they signed up for. But clearly, it was not what we got. And they were looking at each other like, what the hell is going on? Giggling, laughing, like you said. I maybe laughed mm, twice at certain things in this. And I, I mean, it's interesting that you had that reaction where you laughed obviously more than I did. I was taking it very seriously while watching it, I suppose. But I could understand why some people would find it darkly humorous at times, especially uh, Barry's delivery. I mean, speaking of delivery, though, Colin Farrell needs to team up with Yorgos Lanthimos on every single one of his films moving forward. He delivers the dialogue so perfectly in this and in The Lobster, I feel like. Colin Farrell reminded me a lot of, and I think part of the reason I laughed was combined with his dialogue, some of these very long-winded soliloquies, it reminded me a lot of his In Bruges dialogue, so I was prepared to laugh. Like, um, the scene where he's like, you know, if you're an ophthalmologist and I had an issue with my eyes, then maybe I'd take your advice. Reminded me so much of, if I was born on a farm and was retarded, then maybe Bruges would impress me. But, like, um, that, and then the line delivery, with whenever Barry Keoghan said something, for example, he's like, yeah, I started smoking cigarettes six weeks ago. Now I'm addicted. Just the deadpan delivery, that was so funny. How about the deadpan delivery of the threat itself and how he tries to say it as quickly as possible that by the time <laughs> he's done saying it, you're just like, wait, what did he just say? <laughs> you know? Again, that absolutely cracked me up. And just when um, at one point Colin Farrell's daughter tells someone that they love them, just in the delivery, it's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's just because I love you so much. Like, the, the monitor... 
I honestly think, despite being in many ways a horror film, like The Lobster, this works as a great comedy. I found I, it very, I, very I, funny. That's like a that's a real stretch for me. I I can't go that far and say that. Although I understand the elements that would make it seem so. It just I, I to me, I think you're using that humor to mask your uncomfortableness is what it really comes down to. I mean that that's partially true, but I. I'll, you know, like the as you saw with the lobster, he clearly deliberately excuses any single tone. But I think the lobster is deliberately supposed to be funny. This is bizarre, dark, and ridiculous. That I don't think it's meant to be funny, but we project that humor over it because we're so unwilling to succumb to the bleakness and uncomfortableness that he's setting out to achieve in this. I think partially. But I have to believe that a lot of it was also deliberately comedic, dark, dark, darkly comedic. Otherwise, sure. aspects just seem poorly handled. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a scene where, like, for example, Martin asks Stephen to come over for dinner with him and his mom. And oh his mom God. is played by Alicia Silverstone. And she makes a comment to Stephen at one point. She's like, you have nice hands. And he's like, thank you. And next thing you know, she's like sucking on his fingers and it's like I love that scene. I I mean, it just it's not normal human behavior, and that that's why I think that the film once again conveys that dream or nightmare like mentality to it, because people do things and the story goes in wild directions that are just not of this world. And I think that's one of the cool things about Lanthos Lanthimos movies is, as always, there's no explanation as to why supernatural things happen. They just do. Like, people have the ability to curse other human beings in this because they do. And it's not really questioned whether or not they can. Just like in The Lobster, people can turn people into animals. It's just there. And I I love that addition to the story. I mean, it not just the human behavior, but everything about it up to and including the city itself, it does feel alien. So speaking of the story here, um, this is a story of a man who thinks he can play God, who comes across a boy who's playing the devil, essentially. And it's a Greek tragedy in many ways, and it's also kind of a retelling of the biblical story of uh, Abraham having to sacrifice his son Isaac and I found all of this to be a very interesting b horrific and c the one part of the movie that really kind of maybe undid it a little bit for me was when Martin says like says in dialogue that it's all a metaphor oh my god I thought that was awful now, the, the action leading up to that certainly left an impression on me. I won't say what it is, but Martin does something very distinctive and memorable. But yeah, that bit of dialogue was awful. No shit, it's a metaphor. Like, they didn't, they didn't need that. And I almost feel like they were pandering to the audience that just wouldn't get it. And, and then also, they did really lay the, you know, the biblical symbolism on very, very thickly, where Martin's sitting in a chair and people start kissing his feet... And then, you know, they, they had crosses in the background a lot. Like, whenever they go to the school, you see crosses everywhere. Uh, something like that was very on the nose. 
you would probably get it that this guy's the devil regardless <laughs> yeah, he, he, this kid you know, is the devil <laughs> he's so clearly evil it's like uh, it's like is... damien from the omen grew up and became martin <laughs> yes exactly but some of the uh the other symbolism i thought was fun i liked the uh the watches that show up a lot you know mm, and yeah. basically the minute that colin farrell gives uh barry kilgan the watch he like passes on his ability to control time to him, I guess, or to control the the time in his life. I, I thought it was more so of a time of other people, you know, because at the end of the day, he's a heart surgeon that literally holds the power of life and death in his hands for the people that he's operating on. Mm. So I looked at it more so as when he gives him the watch. Uh, now all of a sudden, Martin has that power, and he in turn uses it on steven it's interesting because we're not really revealing like the spoilers so much but i'm sure for those that haven't seen the film that may be listening to this they're probably like what the hell are they talking about (laughs) (laughs) and you'll still say it after the movie's over too surely to be clear yeah definitely the repeated emphasis on hands yeah oh yes you know throughout the film Mm-hmm. Aside from being awkward, you know, your hands are the, the tools that carried out acts of violence or sin. Or for a chance to do good. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then uh, there's another way hands show up if you get my drift. Ah! <laughs> okay. Ah, that's funny. You know, I have to say, too, uh, the opening shot of this movie, um, which is an extreme close-up on an open-heart surgery that plays out, like, the movie starts off with, like, Black screen, classical operatic like music playing over it. Next thing you know, it's like boom, first shot, freaking open chest with a heart beating, and it's like whoa, you know. And then the camera just slowly pulls out as like the scalpels are coming into frame and so on and so forth. And that is like the immediate sign right away that this movie is meant to make you feel uncomfortable. But I also think, too, that it's also the perfect visual representation for uh, this film and its theme of a man who ultimately thinks that he can play God. Because at the end of the day, Colin Farrell's character is a man of science. And when these bizarre, supernatural-like events start befalling upon his wife and children, he's still turning towards science as a means to find an answer for what's happening, but he can't find it. And it just goes to show you that some things in this world are truly unexplainable no matter how hard we try. Yeah, and I... There was a lot that they do with his character in general. Uh, that tell that does show a lot without telling, you know, and not just the fact that he's unable to let go and he continually digs into medical means to try and salvage the situation till the very end. But I like moments that show, as weird as it sounds, though I haven't seen the film, those who haven't seen the film, glimpses into how his medical life influences everything, even looking at his sex life, for example. Mm. You know, and there there are just clear signs that tell you, okay, he clearly prefers one of his children to the other. And that, you know, when a kid, when his son comes in and asks, can we see the operating theater? There's the implication also, okay, well, issues in this film might be happening because he's a neglectful father, because he wants to control everything, particularly in his job, and he maybe lets his kids slide. Uh, the care he shows his kids slide. You know, he he likes his wife to remind him of his patience when they have sex. You know, I think Lanthimos does a brilliant job 
showing all these multifaceted sides to someone who's a bit of a douchebag's personality um, and how it does all in turn come back to this desire to fix, to control. He wants the house run like clockwork. I don't know. I thought I just thought there's a lot of there's a lot of scenes that don't feel like they add much. And there are some here that I still think could have been cut, like shots of him showering for no reason or the creepy Ellie Goulding song. But a lot of the little scenes also give so much for his character and do tie us in to this overall picture of this man who is such a man of science as you describe it. I will never be able to listen to Burn by Ellie Goulding the same way ever again now. I will say that much. Oh, it's so creepy. That version is so haunting. It's awesome. Colin Farrell, I liked him in this. I didn't love him. I prefer him more in The Lobster. I have to say I was kind of underwhelmed by Nicole Kidman, both as an actress and also as a written character, because there was a direction I was expecting the story to take in the third act as far as uh, what Steven would choose to do in regards to his wife and kids. And I was hoping that Nicole Kidman's character would be kind of like a catalyst for that decision. And it doesn't go that way. And it made me kind of just look at her as a selfish character in many ways who, like her husband, maybe doesn't particularly care for her own children uh, that much. You know, we see that these are two people that are probably both neglectful, not just Colin Farrell, I think, but... I don't know. Did you feel that she could have used a little bit more at all? Yeah. There were some interesting moments with her, like what she's willing to do to get information uh, from an anesthesiologist. And the mo I mean, she's the one who's actually abusive in the family, it looks like. You know, she comes across around the house as kind of the sweet, oh, don't mind your father's militaristic rule. But there's a scene in the hospital room where she almost breaks someone's wrist. I mean, yeah, but I do agree. While they take steps to flesh her out, I'm not entirely sure why she was there, other than to, as you said, just be kind of a selfish asshole. Um, and yet, her performance, while good was nothing we haven't seen from Nicole Kidman before. Yeah. At Cannes, people talked about, oh, well, this is maybe her best chance to get a supporting actress nomination. That's not going to happen. No, that's early in the year talk is what it is. She's pretty one note in this, and I, I agree with you. I was disappointed. The flat affect she was directed to have didn't help. Also, she didn't do as good a job masking her accent as she normally does. There's a lot of moments where I was like, oh, there's the Australian. Yeah, well, I mean, Colin Farrell doesn't even try, so go figure, right? The person who gives the best performance in the movie is actually uh, Barry, who we saw earlier this year in Dunkirk, in my opinion. I think this kid is going to be a huge star. Barry was fantastic, and he's someone who the flat affect worked so well for. I mean, he just got under my skin in ways I cannot describe. There's a scene with him eating pasta. Oh, man. Oh, man. That is awesome, that scene. You see the sauce in the corner of his mouth? (laughs) One of the most uncomfortable scenes I will probably see this decade in a film. Well, you know what also helps uh, greatly, too, with that scene is um, actually the way that uh, Lanthimos chooses to shoot the film with the high contrast ratio, which really uh, highlights that red sauce in many ways. Yes. Again, so that, um, you know, the blacks are very, very black in this movie and the whites are more blown out 
so that when yeah. you have the scene where there's a primary color like red, it really, really, really shows. So that scene when he's eating the pasta and it's like all over his mouth, God, it's just so unnerving. And something else I thought that was just a really nice small touch that Lanthimos did in that scene is that they mention, oh, I need to leave to go to school, which implies he's eating spaghetti for breakfast. I don't know why that little touch made it just so much freakier. Uh, well, he needs to get his carb intake, you know? He's got to get to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, it, you know, like, just little things like that were so expertly engineered. And as you said, he's an incredible... One thing I will say is I don't know where this film was supposed to take place because you've got... Um, he's giving, like, a Long Island accent... And then the doctors are all from the South. Nicole Kidman is like Midwestern and then Colin Farrell is Irish. It was a little odd that there was no... His American accent was the only thing that didn't do it for me about his performance. And presumably this is his first time trying to be American. But you know what I mean? It it reminded me a lot of Emery Cohen's accent in Place Beyond the Pines. Sure. But other than that, yeah, he... I mean, honestly... He might end up in my personal supporting actor top ten for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. I hear you on that. Yeah, he, he's he's stunning in it. Other aspect I want to give a shout out to. I'll never listen to it on its own, but the score is fantastic. Yeah, I'll never ever ever listen to the score. It's just it crescendos to certain points where it, it almost fe- functions like a jump scare, but it's not. To the point, yeah, I was trying to decide where the sound editing began and where the score ended because there are some great moments where every, I mean, the climax of the film, basically, every time something's about to happen, you know you're going to get another from the score, but it doesn't come when you expect, and every time it happens, you jump. And yeah, there's sudden cuts. To the the point that I can't figure out if the film was badly mixed audio-wise, or if it was just deliberately, we want the score to drown out everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was o- overpowering. But in this context, and only in this context, it worked. I want to ask one final question before we get into final thoughts, grades out of 10, Oscar potential. And that is, in regards to the theme of tipping the scales of justice, and why certain people are taken out of this world, um, what are your thoughts on the devil, God, whatever you choose to believe, um, choosing when it's time for people to die and how the film comments on that. So this film seemed very nihilistic to me. It seemed like there was very clearly a devil. I can't say there was a God present. Everything seemed very, very unfair. The person who dies seems fairly innocent and undeserving of their punishment. There are people who clearly, in fact, almost everyone in the film is a bad person. Most of the people who work at hospitals are assholes or cheat on their spouses, you know, and and they all keep going on into old age. I saw this as a world of sadness and death in very little true justice, despite what the devil character is trying to describe as justice. Nothing seemed fair here. So, yeah, you look at it as the devil is always present in this world, but the... um, God's off having a smoke break somewhere. Yeah, essentially. Okay. All right, interesting. Final thoughts. Great out of 10. Oscar potential. Uh, No Oscar potential. This isn't going anywhere near the Academy. (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, just forget that. But I will say just for personal enjoyment, I thought it's very well shot. I could have done with a few fewer uh, long, long tracking shots down hallways. But the images are striking and a bit hypnotic. So in my personal awards, you know, it's probably my top 10 for cinematography. Um, as far as a grade out of 10, I in a perfect world, I'd give it a 6.5. But I, I'll give it a 7. No, no, actually, no, it, it's it's a clear 7. It's a clear 7 for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, seven, you know, on the next best picture scale, very good, few flaws, but overall good. So yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Uh, for me, this is a dense film. It's the kind of film that I really like because it gives me a lot to chew on and think about in terms of themes. Uh, there's a lot in terms of how the pieces, you know, of the filmmaking from the cinematography to the music to the way that it's even edited really elicits a reaction and is in service to the vision of the director and allows for you to be able to walk away from this and have the kind of conversation that Will and I are having as opposed to, did we like it? You know, there's a lot to actually chew on here. And I always appreciate films that do that. I I like films that challenge me. And this is a, this is definitely a challenging film. (laughs) This is a, Balls to the wall, pretty insane, actually. And it's also one of the most high-concept films of the year, that's for sure. If The Lobster was a 9, which it was from me, and Dogtooth is a 7, I am very comfortable putting The Killing of a Sacred Deer with an 8 out of 10. I echo what you said before, Will. Zero Oscar potential. (laughs) There's absolutely no way, despite... You know, coming out of Cannes this year where it premiered, people thinking, oh, it could get screenplay. Oh, Nicole Kidman. No, 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 no. There's absolutely no way in hell. But Yorgos Lanthimos uh, solidifies himself now, for me at least, as maybe not this generation's Lynch, this generation's Cronenberg, Lars von Trier, as we said before, but this generation's somebody. His films have now become, for me at this point, event films that I need to see what he does next. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I will certainly... He has not boxed himself in. Yeah. I nev- it's, <laughs> you know, it's a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get with him. So I look forward to seeing what he does next and what actors he works with next. You know, I, I would love to see Colin Farrell show up again. Oh, but, you know, one more final thought on him. I agree with you that not everything about his performance worked for me. But there's one the scene there's a scene in the film where he cries where I thought he fucking brought it. Oh yeah, yeah, no. There's a moment where he does break down because the decision that he has to make is truly unfathomable. And it's in that moment where you could tell that he's come up with the way to make it. And oh, I can't oh, I can't I can't imagine, you know? I, I mean like this is Sophie's choice level shit, you know? I, I just I, I, I can't. I, I, I could never ever imagine being in that situation and you know what too i just realized if the alternative is he doesn't make a decision and you know this uh consequence befalls upon his family the non-existence of god in this world makes that alternative that much more terrifying oh yeah there's only the, you know, what you mean you're going to hell presumably afterwards there's no heaven yeah like like you would think that uh, everybody's gonna be together in a nice happy place and you know maybe it's for the best if you can't make that decision you know yeah 
God. That... Oh, one other question. We didn't mention the editing. What did you think about that? Oh, this film could have shaved off 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's two hours long and it's it's a little it's a little too long. This film could have been 90 minutes. Easy. Yeah. And I think had it cut off those 15, I might have considered bumping it up to an eight with you as well. Yeah. Um, I, I thought there were some interesting cuts in there. But yeah, okay. You, I'm glad we're on the same page that it needed to really lose some weight. Yeah, definitely. Overall, though, um, I can't say I enjoyed myself, but I enjoyed myself. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I got I got my cinema fix. Let's put it that way. I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad it challenged me intellectually. I never intend to watch it again. Fair. I will also say this, too. If there's any film this year that I think deserves to be on Criterion Collection in order to get a second view from audiences down the road, this is something that I think perfectly fits within that wheelhouse, I would oh, say. made for Criterion, without a doubt. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Will, where can they find you on the internet? Find me on Twitter, Mavericks Movies. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. You've been listening to our review of The Killing of a Sacred Deer on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, and CastBox. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Nothing less than five stars is acceptable in our eyes. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you all next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.